So I want to start this talk by naming that we're in a liminal space. We often talk about being on retreat as a liminal space, a place of on two sides of a threshold, a place of transition. And of course, that is even more clear as we are here at the end of one year and the beginning of a next. And I want to say that the topic that we're exploring this weekend is very much about liminal space. It's about recognizing that mm, the place that we have thought we were, the place that we, our lives and how our relationship with the environment, with climate, with the greater world is in a kind of liminal space where we, what we thought we knew, what we assumed has been in the process of breaking down, changing, dissolving beneath us for quite a while. And one of the things that perhaps sometimes is hard to do is to name the liminal space while you're in it. Because all you know is that what has been is not there anymore. And it's mostly can be uncomfortable. It can be, uh, there can be kind of a leaning forward or backward, a trying to get to somewhere new and stable or a kind of wanting to go back to what was there previously. And part of the invitation of this weekend and part of what I want to encourage is a willingness to sit in this liminal space and to recognize that it is not going to disappear overnight. It is not going to be solved or fixed in some easy or short-term way. And in fact, though also liminal space is full of opportunity. And that's part of what the invitation is. So uh, I want to share a story with you that in preparing for this retreat, I was remembering, which is about more than 25 years ago, I was going on my first outdoor well, it wasn't my first, but first backpacking outdoor retreat. And it was down on the Navajo Nation. It was with a wonderful teacher, Eric Kolvig, that some of you, if you've been around a while, might remember. And the pattern, the, the plan of the retreat was that we walked from one place to Lake Powell the big reservoir that Glen Canyon Dam holds back. And when we got to Lake Powell after the 10-day retreat, we would take a boat across the lake and to where our cars were. Um, being someone who was very fond of wilderness and rivers and not happy about Glen Canyon Dam, it seemed like a very unfortunate way to end a retreat was to have all this beautiful wilderness and then to get on to this very destructive of wilderness, man-made, artificial lake and go across it. So 
I rejected that idea. And when everybody at the end of the retreat um, got on the boat, waved them goodbye, and then proceeded to walk back in order to avoid going across the lake. And recently, I was reading an article that someone had written that I really appreciated. It was written by Forrest Woodward, and it was, the title of the article is The Half Lake. And he wrote it while he was, after paddling around Lake Powell, not around it literally, but on that lake, being with this very damaged landscape. And as the lake with the drought and over time as the lake has gone down, the bathtub rings and the silt and all that just become more and more obvious. And this is what he said. He said, people talk about caring for the earth, but what they're usually referring to is caring about a select few playgrounds or curated parks where they climb or bike or hunt. Would we believe someone who said they loved us but only ever saw us dressed up for Sunday service? To really care for something, we've got to become acquainted with all sides of it, the dark, the ugly, and the painful, alongside the beauty and softness. In my mind, if I'm going to say I love nature, I've got to go out and into these seemingly desecrated landscapes and see if I can sit within them with the discomfort. I wanted to name that and read it because to acknowledge that so sometimes we have this this really points to this dichotomy of wanting sort of this pristine, perfect, personal experience and not wanting to get involved in that bigger complexity and where it starts to come up against us, there's a natural resistance. And I can really feel this, and maybe some of you are familiar with this, from my years of being in the wilderness. I remember the first time that I came back to a, it was in the Appalachians and I was a kayaker and I came back to a creek, the Big Sandy that I had kayaked for years. And the river, the small river creek was bright orange with acid mine drainage. And it was the first time I'd really seen like the direct destruction. You know, all the fish were dead, the rocks had turned orange, and I really didn't know what to do with that experience. That's the best way to describe it. Of course, it, I recognized it as painful and uh, challenging, and I was very sad, and, you know, I went back and forth between I'm never going to come and look at this to, again, and, and the confusion from that that resulted. And it feels like I've been carrying this question, particularly environmentally, around with me for a long time. And as I became a teacher and well, a lot of practice and then becoming a teacher, one thing that I noticed was that our community slowly, with a great deal of, um, not necessarily smoothly, 
but began to address some of the other challenging social and cultural issues in our in our environment, for instance, or in our world. For instance, the question of marginalized communities and in trying to increase diversity in our communities and having respect and a place for people with of different race and ancestry, of different abilities, of a, trying to be a more inclusive place. And that started quite a while ago and is an ongoing effort. But one thing I noticed for a long time was I couldn't hear, I didn't hear much about the environmental aspect. And I finally realized one of the things that was so hard was that the environmental aspect was so big, so systemic, so built in, with so little ability to affect it on the level of a sangha or a retreat center that it almost left a vacuum. Like, what can we possibly do? At least with the questions around DEI, there was the possibility of making small, of making changes that would be inclusive. But we haven't really known, how do we, act, do, we do something about this? And so in our practice, we're starting to recognize, and one thing that is challenging is that there's this paradox of our immediate practice, our immediate world, what we can affect, as I was stating this morning, and the larger, enormous challenges of our world. It's like there's these two worlds, and I'll just use that to talk about them, even though as we go on, you'll see that my primary emphasis is how these two touch each other. But the small world and the big world. And the big world being that much, you know, everything that's happening, the small world being what's in our personal orbit. And... There's two kinds of delusion that uh, can be very easily promulgated in this, these two, in response to these two worlds. And both of these delusions are founded on the delusion of separation, that, they're, that these two worlds are not intermixed. But in our experience, we feel the separation of that. And there's the fear of being subsumed in the bigger world, of losing track of all the beauty and the wholeness and the gratefulness of what's here. A kind of feeling like if I really paid attention, if I really let myself feel the big world and all that is, all the suffering that is there, that I would be completely lost. And this, this fear, this um, protection, this strategy is based in delusion. And there's another delusion, which is the delusion that we can somehow live a full life in my microcosm, in this small world, a kind of 
if I can just not get too involved, maybe look at the news a little bit, but not let it bother me too much, that then somehow I can have some ease and comfort here. But that head in the sand, all of you are here because you recognize that that's not actually possible. That we can have a strategy, an idea that we can close it out, but it's not possible. And most of us realize that it doesn't work, but we don't know what to do with that information a lot of the time. And it's important to recognize that when we sense the suffering and the challenges, our natural instinct is fear. There is an existential crisis to it. This isn't a misunderstanding. When we see what's happening, it's scary. It's a crisis of survival. And sometimes it's confusing because it seems like it's definitely a crisis of survival for all the species that are being impacted. And there's a confusion because is this a crisis of survival for me as well or just for other species just for other people but it doesn't feel that way does it it's like no this is actually a crisis for me too but we can't figure out how or why because i'm actually fine and so dancing in this confusion in this paradox and i wanted to i started this morning and i want to rename the truth of what's here, the acknowledgement of so much beauty, the preciousness. The Buddha spoke so much about the preciousness of this human life, the preciousness of not only hearing the Dharma, but having the conditions externally and internally that draw us to the Dharma, that that allow us to practice. This is a great thing to be grateful for. This is a great thing to be grateful for. And we can have so much gratitude for the abundance in our life, for friends and family, for the natural world that we each have access to in our own way, that we have the basics of food and shelter, this is from Robin Wall Kemmerer. We are showered every day with the gifts of the earth, gifts we have neither paid for, air to breathe, nurturing rain, black soil, berries and honeyberries, the trees that become this plate, that, that be, the tree that becomes this paper, you don't have the paper, but I do, a bag of rice, and the exuberance of goldenrod and asters at full bloom. All these gifts that we have not paid for, and yet we receive again and again this aliveness that is here. This phys the physical and mental capacities that we have. the exceptional ordinariness of a day. 
Sometimes when we're on retreat, that's one of the great benefits of retreat, is that we sense the exceptional ordinariness of so much that comes through us, that we see, that we touch. And this morning, we, I've been really encouraging you to touch in and to know one of the gifts that we receive, that we have with us, is our good hearts and our capacity to care and to be cared for. This is inherent in who we are, this ability to love. Another beautiful thing that we're gifted with is our ethical knowing. We know in our hearts when something is aligned, when what we're doing is wholesome, when what somebody something else that something that someone else is doing is wholesome or not now not that every there's lots of things that are sort of neutral and we don't need to categorize them all into either wholesome or unwholesome there's lots of things that you know getting yourself a drink of water eating a chocolate bar let's categorize those are neutral but there's many things that we know are the way the way we speak, some of our actions. It's so amazing. If we ever question our goodness, we can just feel how there's this understanding and connection with what is good and wholesome and how real it feels, how aligned. And with this comes this incredible ability for kindness and the actions that come from the kindness and generosity of our hearts. And there's beauty all around us. I name all of these things because these have been offered to us as gifts. So much of them we don't do anything to earn. And sometimes it can be hard, it can feel hard to accept so many gifts, to acknowledge what incredible beneficiaries we are. There's a author, Martin Practel, who writes, he was trained as a Mayan shaman in Guatemala, and he talks about their tradition and how one of the understandings that they carry is their incredible indebtedness to the earth, to the world. That there is an indebtedness so deep that it can never be repaid. And this isn't to take on a guilt or a shame about it, but it really invites us into a humility and the response that the his people have to this is that what they can offer back to the world is to live to live with beauty to offer to the world beauty that that's how they repay which they can't fully repay but they can at least acknowledge and one of the ways they acknowledge is by living in beauty. So what does it mean to live in beauty? 
What does it mean for you? For me, I really can feel the way to live in beauty is an acknowledgement, a moment-to-moment -moment acknowledgement of the preciousness of this life, of each of our lives. And to make contact with that and to be able to offer it to each other. Living in beauty. And when we feel the gratitude, when we acknowledge all the, the gifts, then there is this natural gratitude that arises and a desire to want to offer, to live in as a humble recipient and with the generosity of heart to offer back to the world. And when we step into gratitude, when we feel these things that I'm talking about, we have made the, we have profoundly moved towards understanding our inner connection. That to acknowledge all the gifts we receive, to feel our gratitude, is to move towards understanding in each moment when we feel that these gifts that we've been offered, we can't help but feel the world that has offered them to us. So this connection, this, oh, I am a, a, a recipient of the gifts of the world and the world is vast. And we can see in that, that we don't live in a small bubble. That even though this world is good right here, it's being supported by infinite conditions. And when we touch into that, as we start to drop the belief that not really, I mean, none of us believe it, but we have kind of a under-the-surface way that we might be feel our bubbleness, our separateness. And as we feel this, these gifts flowing in, it's natural to start to, to feel our ten, the tenderness of heart and to feel the immensity of the world and our vulnerability in it. Since we can't make these gifts happen, we can't make the earth, we, the air we breathe. We can't make the beauty of the world. We can't make our good hearts. And when we acknowledge that and see all these conditions coming into this moment, we can feel our own vulnerability and our own softness and our humility. And we're coming into contact with truth. We're coming into an understanding of the way things are. Also, as we feel this, and I, and I, these things I'm describing 
I think we all know you have felt this, this, and as you feel this though, this vulnerability, this, uh, the way the world is offering these gifts as this sense of separation is broken down in that way. There's also a little alert happening that it can feel threatening. Oh, if I can't earn or make these gifts happen, if these are just offered, if the world is dissolving around me, will they be taken away? Have they already, have the conditions already been put in place that these gifts will evaporate? Will I not get what I need? And our culture is so driven by a sense of I need that we forget and these gifts we we start to take the gifts as something I need and must have and somehow must have earned and somebody's going to take them away and so there's a natural fear that arises as we start to feel this connection, it's not all roses to feel completely connected with the world. To have the self dissolve in this way, to have our bubble, our membrane become permeable. We can feel how, oh, that puts me at the, that, that connection. Am I at mercy of the world? What does that mean? And we might want to retract into the bubble, want to hide from the greater complications. We might feel we need to protect what we have and that there's nothing I can do about that. And maybe try harder to make sure that the gifts that we've been offered, somehow that we can hang on to them, somehow that we can keep them going but we didn't make them happen to start with. Alternatively, we're starting to sense into this when we allow the gifts to come in and we see that we don't create it and we aren't the keepers of it. We're sensing into the anatta, the not-self, permeable nature. And the way the self does not end with this bubble. So there's this invitation, how allowing our view to be vast without being crushed by the conditions. To not be overwhelmed or to come into a place of despair or hopelessness or a sense of powerlessness, or great anger. All of these in some ways are different defense mechanisms against this recognition that we are connected to everything, that it does matter, that we can't keep our bubble. Sometimes we can start moving into an existential feeling of that nothing matters or just depression and listlessness when we recognize that we are not isolated. Part of our 
part of our practice is to let ourselves feel all of this, to be willing to feel the fear and the grief and the anger, the sadness and the despair. More than 20 years ago, when I first started doing work with Joanna Macy, and I hope many of you are familiar with her and the work that reconnects. And one of the very beautiful and profound things that she brought and with others helped develop in the Dharma is this understanding that these emotions, these responses to the world have to be felt. That our practice is not to eliminate them. I remember very like very early on in work with her saying something her saying something to me uh, personally something like I don't remember the exact phrase but something like don't let the Dharma cool you out and it's so interesting because it's like the definition of Nibbana is to cool out so what was this person telling me what was she pointing to? And I feel like she was pointing to don't let yourself not be touched. Don't imagine that just because you are, uh, because you have access to peace and to ease, don't close the world out. Let it flow in. This is part of the deepest chords of our humanity. This is not contradictory to our safety or our survival or our sense of belonging. It's actually key to those that we feel our fear and our grief and our sadness and even our despair. But to do that, to let ourselves feel these things is in some ways tapping into the very deepest part of our practice. To be able, and this is why this morning we were starting with this, this that we need a certain amount of stability. We need to know our own goodness. We need to feel our hearts to have the refuge of loving kindness. We need all of these in order to be able to touch into the challenging emotions, the fear and the anger, the grief. And our practice doesn't separate from those, but gives us the stability to feel them to let them wash through us, to feel it in our bodies, not as an intellectual idea, not as something that we uh, can process and fix and get through, but as an expression of our humanity, expression of our caring, of our love. And this is different than 
to to feel this part of what we have to let go of to let ourselves feel it is instead the grabbing a hold of and wanting to control the outcome to make some something change to make something happen it's a very deep practice of letting go to feel out of control and in this also to feel the unsettlingness the unsettledness of impermanence this fundamental teaching of the buddha sometimes we look at impermanence on a very personal moment to moment way sometimes on this very very big scale but it's the same it's the truth of impermanence and its corollary interdependence because nothing is the static, nothing is staying still, everything is touching everything else. And this interdependence has been part of our wake-up call, because we can't, we recognize, we can't stay separate. The drought in the southwest affects us all, whether it's through directly through fire or smoke or the price of food. It's all connected, the floods, the loss of species. We are built, we grew, we, uh, we evolved in this world to be sensitive to it. Our eyes, our skin, our ears are designed to be intimately in touch with the world, not to separate us from it. And so, of course, we feel what's happening. We can feel the air. We can feel when something happens out of season. So the first thing we have to do in this practice of bringing our worlds together is being willing to feel, to be uncomfortable. And to acknowledge the challenges of it. Letting be, ourselves be startled by what we feel. And to begin to let, to again and again, I say begin, but really again and again, to recognize this impermanence, this challenge. How do we live in this dynamic, unreliable world? How do we repay these infinite gifts that it offers? How do we participate without getting subsumed or lost in the pain of it? And the Buddhist tradition points to seeing the truth, seeing the truth of it. Everything the Buddha taught had to do with being willing to seeing the truth. I love uh, Gloria Steinman's uh, phrase, truth will set you free but first it will piss you off. So 
this is where we are. It is not pretty. And the more we let ourselves be touched by it, the more impacted we are. But that's not a problem. Anatta, letting go of the illusion of a separate self, seeing, recognizing that we're part of this larger world and all of the world is flowing through us whether we deny it or participate in it. It's here either way. And we're used to thinking of anatta as somehow something that's going to free us just of the challenges of the egoic self. But it also puts us in this tender relationship and contact with everything else. So we feel not only our suffering, but the suffering of the world. Nothing is outside of us. Nothing is beyond and being willing to let go of that belief, which, you know, because of the discomfort of it, just feel all the different ways that we distract, avoid, resist what's happening in the world in order, thinking that somehow that resistance, that denial, Staying in ignorance will somehow protect us from that truth. But the truth is there. Everything, everything is part of us. And we are part of everything. Everything is contingent on every... How you feel when you get up on the morning is contingent, is it not, on whether there's fires in California or whether some, there was a mass shooting the day before. It can't be otherwise. And to recognize that. It's not good or bad that everything is contingent on everything else. It's just the way it is. And sometimes our confusion, we think that we shouldn't feel it. I've said that many times, but I keep saying it because sometimes the more we practice, the more we might have access to peace and ease and equanimity. And sometimes we can get confused and think it should be that way all the time and that if we're feeling something else, that somehow we've failed or we've done something incorrect in our practice. And we haven't. We're, at, we're touching into the truth of things. This immensely terrifying truth that everything is connected and we're part of it. And staying fluid and alive, not closing down around this fluid nature of reality and recognizing that nothing can be pinned down, captured in a label or a concept, that it's going to keep changing and our minds are going to keep being confused as one thing contradicts another. 
And that's really hard for us because we think we should know. And that's one of the next piece that I want to name is that as part of our practice, we have to give up the idea of knowing. A lot of times we want to know in order that we can control, that we can solve, that we can fix. Not possible. Not possible. We're one point in a vast web. There's infinite contingencies. We can affect things. We can have, because we're connected to everything, which is amazing, what we do matters. It influences, it spreads out. When we say a kind word, the world ripples with it. When we do an action of care for another person or a being or the earth, that ripples out because everything's connected. But it doesn't control it. It doesn't make anything happen in the way that our minds might wish it, it would. I've said this quote before, but I really like it from Carl Sagan. He says, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you have to invite the universe. And he's pointing to the fact that we don't do anything on our own. It's all part of the everything. So there's a lot of freedom in that. You're not going to fix the world. You're not going to control it. But there's also a lot of responsibility that what you do matters because you're connected. And as we invite the world in, as we acknowledge this interconnection, we may find that we have to give up a lot of the pleasantness, the preference for pleasantness that we've gotten used to. We may discover that our preference for pleasant mind states, for easefulness in a controlled way, is blocking our willingness to feel and be connected. That we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And if you're newer to practice, you 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 probably think, oh, if I practice long enough, then this will stop being uncomfortable. No. If you practice long enough, you'll just get better at being with discomfort. And sometimes, sometimes, when we practiced a lot, we get confused and we think it's about comfort and pleasantness. And then, boy, the world right now is not letting us withdraw into that belief. No, you need to come out and bring your practice, your capacity, your big heart that you've been cultivating, bring it out and let it be exposed, let it be tender, let it be touched. Let it be uncomfortable in the most beautiful way. Let it ache for the world. Sometimes it involves letting go, 
of what we thought we needed. This is from Rosemary again. When living on a tiny island. It was a dream, but I tell you, everything was on fire in the house. I knew the whole island would burn. And I had to choose what to take. And I ran past the old records and thought, I have those songs in me. I ran past the books and thought, I have those stories. And I ran past the photos and thought, those memories are already with me. So I ran, chased by flames, toward the ocean with the only thing I can really carry, this buoyant love. And I dove in, hands empty, able to cup the water and pull through the tide. The salt water lifted me, whispered in waves. Letting go is what keeps you alive. For those of you who have had a long practice, I want to share a little incident that happened to me. Uh, it was a number of years ago now. I was practicing in a remote place in Bhutan. I was doing a very uh, open nature of mind practice, resting in awareness. Some of you might have it. Um, it was a Dzogchen practice. It was very blissful and sweet. And it was a long period of this and at a certain point, I started to get confused. I was like, oh, you know, talk about a bubble. This bubble was just so beautiful, but I could feel, what is this about? Why do I keep doing this? What, what's the benefit? And when I came down off the mountain, literally, I uh, had the opportunity to meet with a uh, master of that place and found a good translator and asked him, so what's the point of this, this nature of mind practice? Yes, it's beautiful, but what's the point? And it was very humorous because it took him a little bit because he kept asking the translator and he's like, and I think the challenge was he couldn't believe I was asking this question. Is that really what she's asking? Really? And then he just looked at me and he said, compassion, that's the point. That's the point. The point isn't to rest permanently in some vast nature of mind, vast awareness, some beautiful state. The point is to let that be a reservoir from which compassion bottomless compassion can arise. This is, in some ways, you can feel it as I talk, that this is where the bodhisattva vow comes out of, this understanding that it's not about this bubble. It's about everything, everybody, all beings everywhere, that that's what we practice for. That's why we wake up. That this also is our responsibility. 
that as our practice deepens and our capacity expands, the responsibility grows with it. That this reciprocity with all beings and with the earth deepens. First, we have to stabilize our minds, recognize and feel and know the gifts and recognize them in this place. And then we reciprocate as we expand our understanding. So just because I ran through them, I just want to name sort of a, just a little bit of a progression that I named, just in case you'd like to have it summed up being willing to feel our contact with the world, all of it. Seeing the truth in all the different ways we do in the Dharma, seeing the anatta, the anicca or impermanence, seeing the interdependence and not closing down when we see the truth. Recognizing that we can't fix it and control it but we are participants. Being willing to let go of being comfortable, of the simply pleasant, and then allowing compassion, letting that guide us. And so many people that I've known over the years that are awake, further on the path than me, I notice that that's all they say is this practice is about compassion. And the world right now is inviting us to recognize that again and again. Compassion over a kind of preference, preference for compassion instead of a personal peacefulness. And then the responsibility. The responsibility the bodhisattva responsibility of action to, act, to do something, to recognize that what we do in the world matters, that we are participants, that all the practice leads us forward into action. So I'd like to end with some excerpts from a story and this is by Yael Lachman. And it was actually written after 9-11, but it's still highly relevant. And he starts with by saying, there are moments in your life when the world splits open and forces you to decide what is most important to you and what you are going to do about it. And he goes on to say, after he heard about 9-11 or everything else that we hear about and see. Something made me stop and look. Right in front of me, the river ran down the mountain. A marmot froze on a rock. The real world grabbed me by the collar and hauled me back from the brink. Once it had my attention, it demanded to know exactly what I intended to do. What is required of me right now? by everything that is holy? That's the question. And we must find an answer. We can no longer deny 
that delusion exists and we can no longer fail to respond. Standing by the river, I thought, we love the world too much. We love our own lives and it has made us soft. Everything we love is fragile and vulnerable. This river, this fish, this rock, we are doomed. They know how to fight. Or, don't worry about that. We are doomed. All I know how to do is love this world. Panicked, I scrambled around in my mind for inspiration, for an image of someone wise who had lived through difficulty and who could tell me who I was supposed to become in these desperate days. I was expecting a freedom fighter, somebody, somebody with a gun, somebody with some courage, but the person who sprang to mind was Chiora Obata. the Japanese-American painter who fell in love with Yosemite and the High Sierra. He appeared to me looking exactly as he does in a photograph from 1942, taken at the Tanforan Detention Center. In the photograph, Obata is calm and smiling, teaching a bunch of children to paint. Of all the things to do, there's a war on. Your people have been rounded up like cattle, and there you are playing with a paintbrush. I blinked, hoping to conjure a more martial role model this time. Bonobata stubbornly remained. He sat before me, out on a rock in the middle of the river, watching impatiently as I struggled to comprehend. Then all of a sudden, I got it. Obata wasn't teaching those kids how to paint. He was teaching them how to love. Day after day, right through the barbed wire fence, Obata taught, taught showing these children how to see beauty, how to keep their hearts open. He knew that when delusion and destruction arrive, we must refuse to stop loving the world. Then, and this is the crucial thing, we must act on behalf of that enormous love. And later he says, go out right now and plant yourself in the middle of that which you love most, the thing within you that is most alive. Now listen carefully, because as that love cracks your heart open, it will tell you exactly what this broken world needs from you. This is your holy work, and it cannot wait. Make it big this time. Make it so. So let's sit for a couple minutes and let the words settle.
Thank you for your kind attention. We have a walking period now and another sit just in like 18, 17 minutes or something. Come back for a short sit before the dinner break.